Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nerd Shit. I'm Sam Wilson. Joining me today are three lovely people. Zach Schneider. Troy Hensley. Jeff Wilson. That's my daddy! (laughs) Yes, we had my mom on the show last week. Now we have my dad on the show this week. Thank you so much for coming on today. Talking about Dune 2021, the new uh, Dune film, which is still currently in theaters and on HBO Max. Spoilers ahead for Dune. On that subject, let's go ahead and start our review for Dune 2021. Uh, spoiler start here for Dune. We'll start talking about some of these characters. What do we think of Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, and he, uh, kind of our uh, main uh, hero protagonist? One thing I'll go ahead and say, just as like a blatant statement, but one, you know, it definitely applies to Paul. Every single one of these characters is pretty much lifted directly from the book in translation. Paul is... He's in that weird state of life where he is both having to deal with a lot of shit that is extremely important and is being given way too much, but he's also a teenager and he's, like, having trouble dealing with it as a teen would. Yeah, he's a little moody. Um, He's not physically imposing. He's smart, but he's not yet wise. Yeah, he's, he's also likable enough, but, you know, he does, he does seem to have, like, a good heart and he's very much pulled in you know, the different directions from his parents. You know, his father is a very caring man, deeply, rigidly honorable, always trying to be good. His mother loves him, but, you know, is part of a, you know, very manipulative secret society and whatnot. So he's a character who's pulled in different directions. Um, His wants and his needs and his eventual destiny are all a little little bit at odds. Um, which makes him fun to watch, to see what, what he tries to go for, um, see him pulled in all these directions. Um, I do think Timothy Chalamet did a really good job of portraying him. He has that exact right mix of tenderness and strength that kind of outwardly not the most impressive form, but, you know, having that kind of inner fire that makes him really fascinating to watch. But yeah, that's that's just my opinion on the guy. I think he's almost... A little too whiny for me. Granted, he does have a journey. You do have to start a character in one place so that by the end you have them in another place. And by the end of the movie, he's more or less willing to be the hero to say, okay, this is happening. This is what I've got to do. So I do enjoy that he doesn't stay in that whiny uh, teenage place for too long. I think um, Chalamet Mm -hmm. does Mm -hmm. very well at portraying Paul in rhythms. He has rhythms to him. Mm -hmm. He adds layers to him. The beginning where he has to do that test to see if he's going to let fear rule him. I kind of like that segment. And that's exactly why I didn't give up on him, why I think he was just a little too whiny, because in the end, he does face his fear. And I was like, okay, okay, I can deal with this character. He starts out in the in the book, it's like 14 or 15 years old. They don't really say exactly how old he is in the movie. Uh, he, he's really young. And you know, like you say, he's he's been given all of this training, you know, and he's not really part of the Bene Gesserit. He's being given this training, uh, you know, somewhat illicitly by his mom. There's a point in the movie where he's been plagued by all these um, dreams and premonitions and things. And, uh, you know, he ends up in the in the tent with his mom after, you know, his, his, uh, the planet's been overrun, you know, by um, by the bad guy. And he says, uh, 
he says, man, you know, mom, why'd you make me a freak? That's the only thing I, I only criticism I had about his portrayal because I really felt like that came a little bit out of left field. I didn't think yeah. we played up enough of how, how these yeah. things were uh, affecting him, you know, personally mm-hmm. uh, to warrant that outburst. But, but I think that's part of his journey. And it's like, Almost immediately after that, he sort of mans up and he starts being, you know, like you said, becoming he's 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 on his way to becoming the hero at that point. And Chalamet does a good job of portraying those two things where he's sort of the wishy-washy teenager at the beginning. And then at some point he says, I've got to step up here. I am the sole remaining member, you know, male member of my family. And I've got to, you know, become the Duke of this world. And I've got to find some freedom fighters to help kick the Harkonnens off this planet. So that that journey to me is really clear in the way that uh, Chalamet played, you know, played that character. So I, I did appreciate that. Yeah, I liked him more as the movie went along. At the beginning, I found I, I just found him a little bit hard to connect to. I thought like he, because I, I just I don't know, he was very, as you kind of said, Zach, he was this very kind of moody teenager, but not in a way that I felt like I could really relate to even. It's like, mm-hmm. as it wasn't even that kind of oh, I remember being a teenager. It's like, I don't know, I just feel like he's... <sighs> He felt a little cold. He felt a little distant in a weird way. Like, mm-hmm. I almost wanted him to be more of a hothead. If the, I don't know. It's hard to really I- explain, like, what, what, I'm, what I kind of mean. But I, gotcha. I liked him well enough. I think he wasn't... <sighs> there was something about him. He wasn't as dynamic as maybe I would have liked for him to have been in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think, like, he, he always just had that kind of, like, moody expression on his face the whole time. You know, yeah. he always just mm-hmm. was this kind of, like... Also, just very reactive to things that were happening around him more mm-hmm. than actually like t- taking you know any kind of action for himself, which that's why I liked like t- towards the second half of the movie, I felt that he did start to take a little more agency and started to take a little more action. And that was interesting that like I, I guess we'll find out more about this in the second movie, but the characters kept uh, telling him he has some kind of destiny about him. He's like some kind of chosen one, and I was a mm-hmm. bit confused about what all that was about. It's like. It's like, I feel like at one point his mom tells him something uh, or like, I don't know if she's talking to him or she's talking to the, the other like witch woman. I don't remember, but it's like, oh, like he, he is the destiny to like, uh, you know, save like all space and time or something like that. I'm like, what? Like, what? What exactly is his destiny? What exactly is his mission? And maybe we're not supposed to know that yet, but it just felt like this, like, I get that he is like some kind of destiny going on. I just, I'm just very unclear about what it's actually supposed supposed to be that he's supposed to do you know mm. and again maybe we're maybe that's supposed to be unclear at this point until we actually get to the, the second movie but but no i i thought timothy chalamet did a really good job i i was reading somebody say that they felt that timothy chalamet kind of reminds them of like a young leonardo dicaprio which i can kind of see like he he kind of does have a little bit of that that energy and that kind of uh that on screen you know charisma uh so like i i i don't really think uh timothy chalamet is an actor who we're going to be seeing for for decades to come but i i think that this i think this was a good role for him i think by the end of the movie i think i i, I definitely liked this character it is interesting you're kind of saying that about how he's been getting this training like he has the the training
training that he's been getting from characters like uh, Gurney and Duncan for uh, mm-hmm. like combat training, and then also been getting training from Jessica in terms of using his uh, his Jedi mind trick, you know, the voice. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting. Of course, at the beginning of the movie, I'm like, uh, oh, is this just a thing that all these guys could do? Just like, okay, now I guess this shit just comes from his mom's side of the family, I guess. Like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so, but I mean, that does also feel like kind of a transition into into Jessica, his mother, uh, played by mm-hmm. Rebecca Ferguson, who I thought was a really interesting character and actually ended up being a more major character than I expected her to be at the beginning. But what did you guys think of Jessica in, as, as portrayed in this film? The way I felt about Lady Jessica in this movie was that if, if in the in the book she's much more reserved and in control of her emotions. And so my first instinct upon seeing Re- Rebecca Ferguson play this character was that she wasn't really playing it the way it was written. But then I realized about maybe a quarter way into the movie, what the director did actually was try to take some of the interior monologue that these characters are having and have her act them out. So she is not as emotional in the book, but you know her internal struggle and her emotions because, you know, it's an omnipresent point of view and you can see into into what she's thinking at all times. So they took that and they externalized it in, in Lady Jessica. So just to help us tell the story. At that point, I was I was kind of like, yeah, I, I I appreciate what they did because otherwise it would be hard to pick up on some of these things that that Villeneuve really wanted to to portray. So I, I thought it was good. I thought she was good. Yeah. I also think they did a decent job of showing that most of those emotional outbursts were pretty private moments. Um, when she was around other characters, she was mm-hmm. acting in a much more reserved manner. So, yeah, I, I pretty much think that's exactly the case. Is just that it's a film. You're going to want to show the story instead of like telling all of it. And it's one thing I like about this adaptation that is nonetheless unavoidable due to how bloody dense the story is. At some point, you are going to have to have some exposition, but Denis Villeneuve is is a master filmmaker, so he still manages to show a lot of it um, anyways. But it's just there is so much you're going to have to have some exposition anyways. So yeah, with with Jessica, I kind of feel the same. She's, yeah, she's an interesting character. One who is very much used to a life of cold calculation, um, was raised uh, to be a master manipulator, but, you know, has the fatal flaw, which is very debatably a flaw, which is that she's also a person. She has her own feelings about this, too. She's not all about the game. She does actually care about the people in her life, but she is also aware of, like, how massive the stakes are. So, yeah, I, I really do like her portrayal. I watched the 1984 version for the first time two nights mm-hmm. ago, just to understand a little more. Mm-hmm. And I do enjoy the way that uh, Rebecca Ferguson handled the character, as opposed to the other actress that played Lady Jessica. I think that seeing that inner monologue on the outside made her more interesting, because if you go back and watch the 1984 version, the actress either plays her a little too stoic or a little too emotional as a female. And I really like the way that they handled her. I think that she was strong for her son all throughout the movie, and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the relationship between mother and son throughout the whole journey, and it was one of my favorite parts of the movie. The whole uh, why did you turn me into a freak thing, I agree with you um, 
that that wasn't foreshadowed enough. We didn't see that mm. coming up. But uh, I think Rebecca Ferguson really... Coming from what she usually plays from Mission Impossible, The Greatest Showman, the characters that she usually plays are out there, strong, and and I think that she brought a little bit of herself into this character. And we did get to see her be vulnerable, and that was kind of nice, mm-hmm. but not vulnerable in an annoying way. I thought she was interesting. Yeah, I wasn't expecting when they first introduced her for her to go on this entire journey with Palm. But she, she really was kind of the other main character of the film. And uh, I thought Rebecca Ferguson did a really good job. I just didn't. And I'll, I'll come back to this. I just didn't really understand a lot of the things about her storyline, which is me saying that I don't understand this or the other is going to become a recurring thing throughout this entire review. <laughs> I'm going to say. Take a shot. <laughs> Drinking game. I just, I was, I was confused about her with the that whatever like sect of witches, like the the ben, Benny Giuseppe or whatever it was called. Like <laughs> I don't know, like <laughs> Benny Giuseppe. No, <laughs> wait, wait, way more Italian. But <laughs> the ex- extremely Italian secret society running the world. <laughs> the Illuminati, and and also just her relationship with. Uh, Leto, uh, Leto, whatever his name was. Um, I was confused about their relationship and how much he was aware of like her activities with that group. I'm going to jump in here and actually uh, emphasize that point. Sharon has never read the book and she probably didn't remember enough about the uh, 1984 Dune movie. Towards the last, you know, half of the... In, in, sometime in the last half of the movie, Leto, Duke Leto says... I wish I had married you. And Sharon just leaned over to me in the theater and said, what? I thought they were married. You know, it's like, I did, <laughs> I did too. Find out, I, I totally did. Yeah. yeah. We, we find out yeah. only in the like, you know, at the end of act two that, you know, they're not, they, she's a concubine mm-hmm. and not, and not a wife. Well, I also was confused because I thought that I might've misheard the line and that he said, I shouldn't have married you. And I was like, I, I wasn't sure which which one he had said because they're like, okay, is it because they're having? Are they having kind of a spat? Where it's like, oh, I should never have married you, or it's like, wait, did he say I should? And then I realized later because, like, I think like, at one point, I think it's what one of the uh, like like somebody else. It might have been one of the Harkonnens. Uh, well, like, kind of refers to her as his concubine, but is, is it like, oh, is that just like, you should just like do it? Maybe like they are married, but he's saying that as like an insult to her. It's like, oh, you and your concubine. It's like, you know, you and your whore, basically. It's like, <laughs> oh, wait, no, she is actually his concubine, I guess. Like, but yes, yeah. I'm glad that you said that, Dad, because I had the same uh, thought later in the movie. It's like, are they not married? Like, because I really <laughs> thought they were too, but it's also interesting that they, like, that's like the first scene that they really have together in the movie is when he says that because like mm-hmm. the two of them barely share any screen time but I don't know I mean what we think of uh, I mean on the subject of, of Leto I mean uh, Leto played by Oscar Isaac who the entire movie I kept expecting to be a bad guy as a twist <laughs> I don't know why I was just like there's no way this guy is really this nice he's too good he's, exactly he's a really good guy. I, well, I kept thinking it was gonna be this thing that's how where... I knew it was gonna die 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, had, no. He's, he's he too good for this world. all over him. Like, I, I just was getting these vibes the whole movie, where it's like, even the way they were talking about the Harkonnens, it's like, yeah. oh, you haven't faced Harkonnens, they're not human. I thought that this was gonna be this, like, oh, point of view thing. It's like, oh, we're, we say that they're trash and they're monsters, but really, they're not so bad, but we're actually the monsters. Yeah. But then by the end of the movie, it's like, oh, wait, no, maybe it is actually just completely face value what it was presented to be to begin with. Okay. I don't know why. I just, I thought it was going to be, the, I thought it was going to be this big reversal for some yeah. reason. That's like, it's going to be this thing about, how, oh, it's like these imperialistic bastards are just saying, any, oh, they're, they're monsters because they're weird albino people. And like, we just think, oh, no. It's like, oh, wait, no, I guess they are just actually just evil bastards. Okay, whatever. Yeah, they're just evil <laughs> bastards. Yep. I love Oscar Isaacs. Um, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. He should have shared a kiss with John Boyega on screen. I'm just saying, I'll always be butthurt about we that. We all know that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in we this all know movie, it. We're all thinking it. Oscar Isaac was thinking it. <laughs> in this movie, <laughs> he has admitted to thinking it, yes. This character is, is too good. He's fair. He wants to know about the people that he's supposed to be managing and ruling. He wants to to make them happy. He wants to give them their freedom. At that point, I was like, oh, they're going to shank his ass. I knew that was coming. <laughs> if Mufasa and Jesus has taught me anything is if you tell people to be nice, they're going to shank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the way a good story goes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think he played him well. And I think he also had faults. You know, he was he was this benign duke. He, he came in and he wanted to make sure everybody was happy, but he also had his point of view and he shared his point of view with, with everyone, but he also wanted people that didn't share his point of view around him. And I was like, this is really nice. I did like his character. And usually I don't like these characters. Usually I'm like, okay, here's a goody two shoe. Oh my God. But apparently they want you to feel for this character. So that when he dies, you feel bad. Stabbed in the back, son of a bitch. My take on that is Mm -hmm. that I think, you know, Oscar Isaac was informed, you know, by either scenes in the script that that were not, uh, were not, you know, were were edited out of the movie or, you know, he had read the book or something. Duke Leto's not just a pure good guy. And I think, you know, Sam, what you're picking up on, thinking that he might turn out to be a bad guy, is the darker side of his personality. Yeah. He is mm-hmm. not married because he's not married to Lady Jessica because he's leaving open the tantalization of one of the other houses marrying mm-hmm. into the Atreides. That's it's a uh. very political, it's a very cold hearted thing to do. And mm-hmm. in fact, He's made multiple decisions throughout, you know, the the book, which which don't are not really well portrayed in the movie. And I know we're we're, we're you know reviewing the movie, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of wonder if if Isaac's knew this stuff about the character, and there's a mm-hmm. little bit of a darker edge to his portrayal. I think he did. I think he at least read the books, if not before mm-hmm. he got cast, but after he was cast, I think he at least knew because I think he did a really good job at just edging around that darkness because you you knew he had something more to him. Uh, you just didn't know what. Now, he, he generally cares for the people that he's ruling, but he's yeah. still cold hearted enough, mm-hmm. you know, to make 
purely political decisions for his own gain. The movie and the book to more to a greater degree so far, but again, I think part two is going to do a you know, a little more of showing this is that this imperialist system, this very top down hierarchical system where these um, countries, these military powers that have power, there's only so good someone can be in this system. Leto is about as good a man as he can be and also have lived as long as he can. And yeah. again, he still is betrayed by the system because he is still too good for this system, even though he is a bit of a bastard. He has tried to be cunning. But again, the system just does not allow that kind of goodness. Because that makes him a threat. That makes him... Mm -hmm. Someone that others will confide in, that others will want to trust, and that makes him a threat to those who really have power, um, yeah. such as the Bene Gesserit, who are pulling the shadows behind the strings, but make no attempt to actually prevent any of this. They know it's coming, but they don't prevent it. Everyone and their mother knows that this is an attempt to kill Leto and his entire house. And, and that's the thing, is that he's trapped. He's trying to see if he can push through it. He's trying to see if he can outsmart, if he can work through the trap, but the entire system is... It's, it, that's basically what's under criticism here. He's a man who's trying to be as good as he can while also trying to survive, and one of those had to give way. I loved Oscar Isaac's portrayal of him. Um, he was fantastic and also gorgeous, my good lord. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> you have any of that pizza to share with us, Troy? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh yeah, just just rub it on the just rub it on the camera. <laughs> He's a fascinating character. He's he's very much a doomed character. That's the thing about the first part of Dune is that it is kind of the tragedy of Duke Leto. In another story, he might have been a hero, but this is not that story. And now I'm going to sing the Doom song. Sorry. Yes, you you completely derailed me, Troy. Anything anything Invader Zim, I'm just boom, I'm on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's interesting seeing Oscar Isaac play a dad character too, mm -hmm. because usually you know you see him as Poe Dameron. I know that he was cast as Solid Snake. I don't know if that Metal Gear movie yeah. is ever going to come out, but usually see him as the hero. And interesting to see, oh, he, he was playing the dad of the hero. It's like he's already kind of transitioning into those roles. But I mean, part of it is that, is that Paul is, comes across as such a young uh, character. That, that he can kind of do that. But yeah, so, but it's yeah. interesting. Like, this, this, it's a different role for him. You, you usually kind of see him as this kind of patriarch uh, character mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in most of the other things I've, I've seen him in. But he plays it really well. And I like the fact that even though he is ultimately doomed, as you said, Zach, I, I like the fact that he manages to – his his death is one act of defiance and ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like one last uh, attempt to defend his house and potentially to avenge his house since he died possibly thinking that Paul and, and Lady Jessica are dead. And mm -hmm. so it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, thanks to uh, Dr. Yue, who like, Dr. Yue was like such a roller coaster of, oh, I'm a traitor, but actually I'm not. No, but I sort of am, but here you go. Like, this I'm is the most regretful betrayal in history. It's like, <laughs> exactly. all right, I just want you to know I'm betraying everybody. I feel really bad about betraying you, so I'm also going to betray that guy while I'm betraying you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I've got to betray them while I'm betraying you. So it's like, I like the fact that that was his last act is that he knew yeah. he, I, he knew he was going to die. So he's like, at least
least I'm gonna get some some revenge and and take out some of these guys. Uh, that and, and he, was ta- he takes crazy. out uh, he takes out the the leader. He yeah. takes out the Stellan yeah. Skarsgård character as well. Yeah. So it, 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 his oh. death had some some meaning to it. Oh uh, no, Baron survived. Yeah, Baron oh, survived. He? Yeah. Whenever yep. they whenever they go in, back into the room, they look up and he's clung to the ceiling like a little cat. Oh, I totally I totally missed that. They killed David Dasmalchian though. Yes, they kill his mintat. Oh, they killed Okay, so David Dasmalchian died. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that Stellan Skarsgård's character survived actually. Mm. I need to watch it again. Yeah, he he was the guy that was recovering in the uh, the oil pool. Yes. Oh, you know, I was like miss I was like misremembering the order of the scenes. I think that yeah. was my yeah. I was thinking that the oil pool scene came before because, like, for some reason, I, I was, like, thinking about it after the fact. Again, there, there's, like, so much of this movie that to, to unpack for me. Um, oh, yeah. no, there's I, a I, lot. I was thinking that that he had died, and I was thinking in my head, like, oh, okay, so probably Dave Bautista is going to take over as the Baron in the second one, was what I was thinking. But, no, I guess not. Pretty sure he's going to have a larger role. For the most part. I saw that part coming where the doctor tells him as long as they're close and it, you can get mm-hmm. them within a certain amount of radius. And I saw that part coming, but I forgot that he had that tooth implant when he did it. I got so excited. And I was like, yes, I was like, he killed that fucker. That's what you get. You fat bastard. And then when they came back and he was clung to the ceiling, I was like, son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, saying, like, I was so happy. It's like, yeah, you killed that. You know, like I was thinking that same thing that maybe yeah. I just mentally blocked out the, the, the next scene. It was like, nope, nope. He killed him. He killed him. He killed him all. <laughs> It's what we really wanted to happen. The scene I really wanted to see was the one where he rises up out of the oil bath and he kills Tasha Yar. That's the that's the one that I wanted to see. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Poor Tasha Yar. the main character who was given a red shirt death yes Uh. (laughs) that's that's gotta be like one of the most insulting ways to write with someone out of a show it's like oh so she comes back later in the episode right nope nope she's she's just just dead that's it we don't use we don't use time travel we don't use the transporter she's just dead sorry well, there's there's a lot of kind of supporting House Atreides characters, but like one that I want to um, – we can kind of like talk about them together. But one I kind of want to single out is is Duncan just because Duncan for me is possibly the most Jason Momoa character that Jason Momoa has ever played. <laughs> yes. uh, like he's so – like as soon as I saw it, I was like, it's just Jason Momoa doing the Jason Momoa thing. Like I don't know if the character was written like that or if he just played it that way or if it's a combination of both. To be fair – that is one to one the character from the book. There was a reason that they cast Jason Momoa. Like, yeah. no, that's just Duncan Idaho. That's <laughs> oh, <laughs> just no, my I, 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 Idaho. Like, I, I saw that in the Wikipedia yeah. when I was like looking up the names of the characters. I, I was like, his name is Duncan Idaho. Like, I didn't, I didn't like catch that in the movie, but it's like Duncan Idaho. Like, he's the Indiana Jones of the, of the cast. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the same with Leto. It's like if this was a different movie, he'd be the Indiana Jones. He'd be the hero, but yeah. this is not that movie. So exactly, <laughs> you can tell that he had a lot of fun playing this character. Yeah, just totally, you know, just just a bro who knows how to fight. It's really came down to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's Jason Momoa yeah. in every role. You know, I know. <laughs> Somebody has to use the term "my own private Idaho" somehow in describing that character. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I... Wait till wait till the third movie. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. He's he's definitely the most Momoan character that ever Momoaned. Yeah. <laughs> Just went full Momoa. Yeah. He brought a nice rhythm to the movie too. You know that a character like that is going to die because for for Paul to really rise up, he can't have someone to protect him. He has to learn to fight. He has to learn to do his own protecting, and he has to learn to protect his people. So you know he's going to have to rise like that. And there was a couple of moments where I thought Jason Momoa was going to die before he died, but I was happy that he lasted as much through the movie as he did, because he was a happy point. Even when the news was dire, he was still a happy point for me. Not because I I look at him and I, I visualize a Sunday cone that I just want to eat and get to the chocolate center at the bottom of the cone. And, um, no. <laughs> but because the character is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the character is awesome. He was, a, he, you know, he was a much yeah. needed bit of levity and joy in the movie, you know, which is mostly, which was mostly just heavy and dramatic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. I yes. agree. That's, that's the thing I like the most about him is that he brought that levity. He brought some humor to it. Cause you're right. There is very little of that in this movie. It's very heavy. It's very uh, kind of dour and serious, but he always comes in. He brings some humor to it. He brings that that lightness to it. And Troy, you're talking about how there were some uh, points where you thought he was going to die. That even happened in a microwave in his actual death scene. That you think he's dead, and then he gets up and kills a couple other guys. He's like, surprise, bitch! I was an apostle! I was kind of like, at that point, I was like, yes! You know, keep on. Maybe he survived survives this movie yeah. but, but no yes it's like maybe, maybe he could be okay no. it's like no, no he's okay. all right <laughs> it off limp it off I'm feeling better <laughs> <laughs> Josh Brolin um Gurney did, he died right did, did he die nope no oh, he didn't he did what not. happened to him he's, he's somewhere he didn't see his death oh he didn't I was like, what? Like later in the movie, I was like, what happened to him? And I was, I was almost like, did he just kind of have an off-screen like, or an implied death during the battle? I was like, what happened to him? The way this movie seems is, if we didn't mm. see them die, they're not dead. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. that's fair. That's what I was gonna say. Like I kept thinking, like late in the movie, it's like we haven't seen him in a while. I feel like he must have died during the battle. Like I, I kept thinking that it's like he must have died during the battle. But no, I, I so so he is he is alive then. As, yeah. far, as far as we know, he's As far alive. as we know. Yeah. Yeah, from what, from what we can see, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that either. He was he was cool. So I, I don't have a lot to say about Gurney, but he was he was fun. He was also very uh very kind of on the nose uh, Josh Brolin casting as yes. well. But yeah. he, he, was, he, he was he was good. I thought he was good in the movie. Sort of uh, dour warrior poet. Sir Patrick Stewart played him in uh in the eighty four mm-hmm. version. Yeah, he was a little more serious um in the movie than he was in the in the book, you know. He's, he's always oh, like okay. playing the balisette and singing. You know, at one point Paul asks him for a song, but uh, you know, I thought he was going to break out the balisette and, and play. So, but I think that uh, the way they actually portrayed the movie. He's he sort of is he's he is that character from the book, but it's definitely their own spin. You know whether that was Josh mm-hmm. Brolin or the director, and I really I really dug it. I thought he was a, a good character as well. I liked him uh, after seeing Patrick Stewart play him. I was like, I would have liked a little dandy in in uh, mm-hmm. that character. Um, 
I hate to compare yeah. them, but that's all I have. I, I didn't read the damn books because that's a lot of pages. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but I never but learned I, to read. I like that. <laughs> damn me being inbred and from Georgia. I mean, <laughs> but, but I do like the way that Josh Rowland uh, played him. I like the differences in the way the actors. One of my favorite things is watching a character played by two different actors. But Josh Brolin brings this. He is our generation, Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy mm-hmm. Lee Jones is just something. If you listen to Tommy Lee Jones, when he speaks, you got to listen for the jokes because he says them mm-hmm. so straight faced. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way Josh Brolin is in this mm-hmm. movie. He made me giggle quite a few times because if you listen to him, he's quite funny. He does have a little bit of that dandy in him, but it's that rough warrior. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. That that trope where where they're warriors, but they're mm. also something else. And I I love the way he played this character. It was nice right up next to Duncan. I think that they had such good chemistry, and it gave just enough rhythm to get me through those moments to where it didn't get boring. He and Oscar Isaac's Leto played off each other very well. Yes, mm-hmm. you know the the very much the pragmatist versus the optimist and. Yep. There's a little bit of both in there, and that Gurney's not entirely without his hopeful side, and Leto's not entirely without his realistic side as well, yeah. but they balance each other out really well, and so it's it's a fun dynamic. I want to get into a couple of these other factions, uh, and this is again going to get into the Sam was confused by this movie. Um, <laughs> Drink again. <laughs> I was confused. Okay, I was confused about the Harkonnens on multiple levels. A, I genuinely thought they were aliens the whole movie until Zach told me that they weren't on the way back. <laughs> I was like, is there so weird? There are these weird, you know, pale albino people who, like, are bathing in this, like, toxic sludge thing. It's like, there's no way these guys are humans, right? <laughs> it's like, and I also was confused. Is there, like, government, are they under the same emperor that mm. the, the house, that, that Paul's house is under? Like, are they all under the yep. same emperor? Yeah, they're all, they're mm-hmm. all under the same yep. emperor. I was confused about that too. Each each house has a lot of power, is okay. the thing, but they do all serve the same emperor. Okay, so I, I guess I guess there's just a lot of infighting between these houses, even though they're they're I guess a mm-hmm. part of the same empire. There's just a lot of infighting between the houses. Okay. Oh, I was done, yes. I was confused about that because like I I thought that they for a lot of the movie that they were part of a whole different government uh, mm-hmm. until like towards the end. Then like I remember like the Baron at one point and mentioned something about the emperor. It's like, wait, are they all under the same emperor? And like, that just confused me more when I was thinking about it. It's like, again, I kept expecting there to be this thing of like, oh, well, they're just perceived to be these evil people, but really they're not so bad. But then by the end of the movie, it's like, well, like, eh, maybe they actually are just that bad. Okay, whatever. All I'm saying is you can tell the emperor is not Palpatine because he would keep that shit straight. You know, he doesn't allow infighting unless he wants the yeah, infighting Yeah, this emperor seems super, like, I don't know if the emperor's <laughs> yeah. going to come into the second one or not, but this emperor seems super uninvolved in everything that's going on. Right? It's like, what, what, what is yeah. he doing? <laughs> I, think I think he missed a couple of important parts in the movie. Leto's death is directly the emperor's desire. Yeah, the emperor yeah. wants Atreides, the house of Atreides wiped out. He's he's on the side of the Harkonnens. Okay. I, he's I, mostly on the I side of himself. I think there's, like, but... one line that 
that that but spoke to that. But I, I was I definitely didn't right. fully mm-hmm. understand that. I definitely didn't fully understand what 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 that was all about. But again, it, it kind of comes to why like why does the emperor want you know Atreides gone? Like, they explain that. They they explained it. Yeah, in the movie, they basically. Yeah, basically, House Atreides is both popular and powerful amongst the other houses. Ah, and yeah, that's right. Leto, Leto is beginning to gain a following amongst the other houses to mm-hmm. the point that he represents a dangerous faction to the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Where he okay. can become Emperor himself. The Atreides and the Harkonnens are... Aside from the Emperor and aside from the Imperial family, those are the two biggest houses. But... In the Emperor's eyes, the problem with the Atreides is that the Harkonnens are really greedy bastards who are very easy to control because uh-huh. they're greedy bastards. Um, as the Baron himself points out, he views Arrakis as his. It's his Dune. And they've grown fabulously wealthy off of Dune, but they're also kind of slaves to their own desires and are therefore really easy to manipulate, whereas the Atreides are focused and interested in bettering the galaxy and look beyond themselves, which is not great when you want to hold power over the rest of the universe. And these you have these very forward-thinking, powerful, upward-moving group right beneath you. You can't kill them personally because that would get the empire even splintered more but everyone knows the harkonnens hate the atreides so he's more than willing to give them the means to kill them out and the harkonnens are already the bad guys in everyone's eyes so yes um so my question is in the 1984 there was this flying booger that talked was that the emperor <laughs> in that version no that was that was the baron oh okay so they haven't cast yeah. the emperor I'd be interested to see who plays them. Ian McDermott. No. <laughs> hey, that would be don't get awesome. my hopes up. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> just going to be Palpatine. It's just going to be him and That's the hood fine. and the makeup and everything. I'm yeah. Like, yes. Palpatine everything, is like, I found the galaxy where it's I actually working out great for me. So. <laughs> now we know where he disappeared to. For some reason, I was thinking that Dune was written in the 80s, but I looked it up. It was actually written in the 60s, yeah. which made me realize just how much George Lucas ripped off from Dune. Dude, when he did oh, Star Wars, yeah. like I, I didn't realize <laughs> that, but I, I can't realize like there's so much of this that was just totally ripped. It's like I first I thought it was the other way around. I was like, oh, they ripped yeah. off a lot from Star Wars because for some reason I thought the book was from the 80s. It was like, oh wait, no, it's the other way around. Okay, yep. yeah. I did the same thing when I looked it up. I yeah. was like, oh, because I was thinking, well, this is a knockoff of Star Wars. <laughs> I, I, that's what I thought, Troy. I really did think that they, they it was the other way around, but no, they actually, yeah. <laughs> looks like looks like uh, that Star Wars took a lot from from this. I love Star Wars immensely, but it is uh, literally <laughs> Dune and a Kurosawa movie that got knocked over the head and then forced into a breeding program. <laughs> is that's what Star Wars is? That's yeah. <laughs> I think that is the best description I've ever heard. <laughs> We even have the sandworms in Star Wars, but yeah. they live on Yeah, we comets. got the sandworms. They talk about spice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get to the sandworms. But again, I think my confusion about the Harkonnens, like, I, I don't doubt that all of this was explained in the movie, but, like, I think the fundamental issue I had with the movie as someone who's who's uninitiated was there's just so much information. It's so dense, and mm-hmm. there's no time, because the movie does have to go along at a certain pace, there's no time to really process a lot of this 
this information. So for someone who's just seen the movie once, it's just hard. It's hard to really like absorb. I like I can be aware of the information that's coming in, but it's hard to really absorb it as it's coming in because there because there's so much I'm having to keep up with. Yeah, I had to break it down. The Harkonnens are the one percent billionaires, Elon Musk yeah. and all that ilk. The Fremen <laughs> are the working class, and uh, the mm-hmm. Ben Jesuit are the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Fremen. I, I want to get back here. The Fre- Fremen, Freeman. It's like that. Was like oh, the Fremen, Freeman. That's kind. Of, that's kind of an on the nose uh, name, mm-hmm. like for them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I understood what they were about a little bit more. It's like okay, these are the natives of this planet. They're the desert dwellers. I was mm-hmm. also a little bit confused about whether they were supposed to be human or not. And the, the only reason I was confused about them was there were just a couple of lines that kind of threw me off. Like uh, there was there was one that um, the the one. Uh, Fremen who was working with the uh the the house uh Stilgar House of Treaties uh Stilgar, yeah. Yeah. That she mm-hmm. she had, had she had, had Oh this no line, Leah. You're talking about Leah Kynes. Uh, uh, sorry. Like, yeah. Oh, Leek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, Leek uh, oh uh, it was so is that uh, is that the Javier Bardem character? Stilgar is Javier Bardem. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Kynes no, I, was the ecologist. Uh, yeah. She she was the imperial observer. Yeah, the yeah. Ecolo- that's who I'm. I, I think I'm talking about yeah, the, the ecologist. The female character. I think yeah. I'm talking about yeah. that character. Yeah. She had had this line like they were saying is like, oh, the the desert isn't kind to the the equipment, and then later says, oh, the desert isn't kind to humans either. And I'm like, wait, aren't the Freeman she humans? She was letting him know. She was secretly yeah. letting him know what was coming. They yeah. knew it was coming, mm-hmm. but they're just tired of all the bullshit from the outside worlds coming in and telling them how mm-hmm. they're going to run their world. I no, I, I, I that got line. that. I, I just the it. way that she's the way she used the word humans there. It was like, yeah. oh, well, we Freeman, we're not humans, so we can survive in the desert. You guys can. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, like that. <laughs> that just threw me off. That line just threw me that. off a little bit. It's like, and then mm-hmm. like also their their weird blue eyes, which I guess is from the spice. Like, I it got, is from like, the spice. Yeah. For, but I, I thought that at first it's like, oh, they have these weird blue eyes. Maybe they're also alien. I, I, I kept thinking. That, that different groups were aliens or different species uh, in this spoil, movie. But spoiler like, alert, okay. there are no aliens in this book <laughs> or the movie, so everybody's human. That was actually something I was going to complain Nobody about. Nobody that wasn't originally human. Yeah. Um, you do get some offshoots, like the Mentats, um, like Thufir Hawad and, you know, the that character. Um, the navigators from the guild are altered, but they were originally human. I think it lacks imagination not to have aliens in space. Uh, that's always going to be, that's always going to be my pet peeve. That's a completely, uh, fair and completely wrong uh, criticism, Troy, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. the, the imagination comes in, in the, in the backstory, which you don't, you know, you don't know from the movie, but, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago, there was an AI uprising that humans squashed and, from that point on, they decided this is what you get when you read the appendices in the book. Okay, <laughs> so that point on, they set up they set up a uh, it is taboo to create, in their words, uh, a machine in the shape of a human mind, and so that's why you see a kind of profound lack of technology in this setting. You've got the doctor who basically can go over there and like 
push on pressure points in your body and tell you your general health without any equipment. You've got the uh, the navigators who can steer ships between the stars without computers. Yeah. You've got Mentats who are the human computers, you know, when you want something calculated. So it's uh-huh. all human evolution to fulfill the mm-hmm. same roles that we use machines for. So it's really, it's, to me, it's really interesting and it's very imaginative. I want to see the oh, machine yeah. uprising. Fuck this desert <laughs> shit. I want to see the machines. <laughs> Bring all the Terminators. Yeah. <laughs> do that that prequel yeah there's not a lot that i have to say about the frame other than what i've already said like i know that we have the again the javier bardem character and the zendaya character i felt that they were in the movie to set up their yes. larger roles in the mm-hmm. in the second yeah half the of next this, one. i, I yeah. felt like i know we see a lot of visions with zendaya and, and it seems like maybe she's going to be a love interest for Paul, but like she, we, they barely meet each other in this film. But I also understand mm. this is half the first half of the story. So there is one thing that is more obvious in the book by this point, but I do find interesting about the Fremen. Um, so in the movie, you do see uh, the Sardaukar, um, who are the absolutely insane, fanatical. Um, they're the army of the Emperor. Um, one of the reasons why the Emperor has power is that he got the Sardaukar dark hour with the help of the Bene Gesserit to be fanatically faithful to him and one of the points that they tried to make in the book is that the reason one of the reasons Atreides is so interested in the Fremen and they do touch on this a little in the movie is that he does want them on his side but the point is that he noticed that in terms of a harsh environment they grew up in a very not exactly the same environment, but a similarly harsh environment. Um, and that's why he's so interested in the Fremen is he wants his own fanatic, powerful army, the Sardaukar for himself. Right. And that the, the, the harsh environment breeds warriors, basically. Yeah. That's, that's one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, you have, a, you know, Leto, who is this, you know, he is better than most of his peers, but he's still trying to pull that same shit. He's trying to turn natives into his personal army for power and his motives are better. And he does care more about the Fremen than the Harkonnen, certainly. Um, and he does care more about his subjects than other people, but he still has that, he has that intent to use them. So you're telling me Leto is Darth Maul. <laughs> yes, but slightly more daddy. <laughs> Not exactly, but it, it does it does show again that dark side of Leto and how he's mm-hmm. you know always playing the political angles. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's not the goody two shoes that he likes to make himself out to be. He's not really a monster, but he's he's, he's not, not objectively good. Yeah, the 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 line again. This is kind of going back to Leto, but like it, I, it's interesting to hear that kind of dark side. But like the line that really um warmed me to him as a character is when uh, he's, he's talking about his son becoming the new duke and he, he he says to him if your answer is no you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be which is my son and I was like oh mm. that's nice you know yeah. that's a nice yeah. dad son moment <laughs> Yeah. 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 Don't you wish I had ever said that to you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's why that's why I turned out to be a terrible person because you never said that. <laughs> Jessica explicitly had him because she was hoping for this space messiah, um, for this chosen one. 
And all Leto wanted was his son. That's all he wanted. Again, these are not entirely black and white characters. Um, Jessica has her good side. Uh, Leto has his dark side. But that's something interesting about Paul's upbringing is that he is kind of torn between having this carved out destiny, having this, you know, future, this path. And just trying to be the best person he can be. Talking about Jessica and her motives, like, that's a good uh, transition into the Benny Giuseppe. I know that's not what they're called, but... Yeah. There's a point in this movie where I literally said, these are the worst Jedi. God. I just, again, I didn't know they're taking shots. Sam is confused. I didn't understand what they were all about or what they wanted or what their whole deal was. I'm like, what? Who are these guys? I know Jessica's one of them, but uh, I, I don't know what their deal is. They were just as self-righteous and icky as all the Jedi. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, instead yeah. of Jedi scum, we have, uh, what are they called? Jesuit scum? <laughs> yeah. But they don't even have lightsabers. And that's, a, that's they the suck. thing. It's like they have, they have all the horrible parts of the Jedi without the lightsabers. Without the laser like, swords. Oh, come on. Those sons of bitches. Cool part. <laughs> you just got this weird little poison box with a little poison needle. Like, yeah, All they can do is a special voice. Are you going to hit me with that special voice? You will come over yeah. here and give me pie. Yeah. One, one thing they do point out is that kind of, kind of like the navigators, um, the navigators can use the spice to kind of see the future. And the Bene Gesserit <laughs> similarly use spice to broaden their own perspective as well. But, like, one of the deals with the, uh, there's so many terms, Kwisatz Haderach is that, you know, they would be able to, like, merge those skills together to become, like, a true, you know, seer, able to really see very far into the future in plenty of different timelines. So they're just crackheads telling the Emperor what's gonna come. Yeah, and... Partially, Pretty it's going to come because they are also, like, they just also mentioned that some of these prophecies were intentionally planted, and it's like, uh, yes, it's going to happen because we made it happen. Yeah, self-fulfilling prophecies. It's said to be that they go to planets and they plant these uh, myths and legends there so that if a Bene Gesserit is there and gets in trouble, she can then pretend to be one of these, you know, uh, foretold figures and, and work their way out of, you know, out of whatever trouble that they got into, like right? So it's a self-protection thing. But, yeah. but, but they, but they didn't, you know, but they actually have a real, they have a real myth about this. So all the Bene Gesserit are women. Mm-hmm. And normally only women ever take this training. Paul is the only one we know of who is male and has had the training. But there's this real myth in the Bene Gesserit order about there will be somewhere along the lines a man who has the genetic makeup so that he can essentially be a full-fledged Bene Gesserit in terms of power. But he will have the ability to do what Zach just said. He actually will have the ability to look down the timeline at all the possibilities and see what is going to occur and then steer the future towards the outcome that he wants. Uh, okay. And so that's that's the legend behind Paul. Yeah, I was definitely vague on what his his epic destiny was supposed to be. And it's it's still vague because it's like, okay, well then what is he going to choose to to make happen? But it seems that his goal at the end of the movie is to unite what's left of his people, which is like three people at this point, with the the Freeman and uh yeah. and defeat the Harkonnens and possibly maybe overthrow the Emperor. I'm I'm not sure 
sure if that's yeah. coming that's down the, the whole line point as well. is to overthrow the emperor. And one thing that I that I do like that they kept very faithful to the book is that one thing he's terrified of, and rightfully so, is that his what he's seeing in the future, um, based on what's happening right now, is that not only is he going to raise an army, but he's going to um, in the book it's described as a jihad before there became a lot of political yeah. terms about it, but it's basically a crusade. Yeah. Um, he's going to not just like defeat the armies of the Harkonnen, but also commit countless atrocities in the name of his father, which, of course, you know, having just lost his father, that's a horrifying thought. That's disgusting to him. But that's the future he sees. But what about the what about the the vision that he has where he dies and they set him up to be this resurrected Jesus character, but he doesn't die? Is, is there and that's a reason the interesting for that? thing is not not all of these visions are literal. Because okay. in the vision, the person that he kills says that he is going to teach him the ways of the desert. Mm-hmm. And he, in the vision, he thought it was as a friend. Yeah. Um, in okay. the vision, he also saw himself sense. die. But he also heard that in order for the Kwisatz Haderach to live, Paul must die. Okay. And, you know, to take someone else's life is to destroy who you were before then as well. So these things do happen. The man does teach him the ways of the desert, not as a friend, but as an enemy by teaching him this conflict. I didn't really understand what that dude's issue was. It's like all of a sudden he's just like, he just wants to fight him. (laughs) It's like, what's your deal? It's like, dude, your, your like leader is saying like, we're going to take these guys. All of a sudden it's like, no, I don't like him. I want, I want to shake him. No battle. Yeah, the leader's like, it's like, I don't know, we might kill him. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. And he's like, no, I, I definitely want to kill him. I'm no. killing somebody today. like, no, today. we can't talk about this later. No, right now. Right fucking now. <laughs> it's going to be this little puny boy or that woman over there. Come on. I'm yeah. slitting somebody's throat. I did like that that knife fight between them. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that, like, it's all set up. Like, everybody thinks Paul is going to lose. It's like, you know, Zendaya hands him the knife. It's like, yeah, it's going to be honor to die with this with this in your hand. And then yeah. <laughs> immediately we see it's not it's not even a, it's not really a close fight. Like, Paul, nope. Paul pretty much kicks his ass multiple times. And he's just trying to avoid killing this guy. But, of course, he ends up having no choice because the guy just mm-hmm. won't yield. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, it was kind of seeing that that he actually is, you know, despite being this little skinny kid, is actually being, has been really well trained uh, by by both Gurney and Duncan. And he is actually a really good fighter. It's not like he was Ray. He's been trained. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) But he should have lost a a hand. That's all I'm saying. They did have their special swords. They had, they had the, the, uh, um, Chris yeah, knives, they you know, did. Instead of yeah, yeah, the, yeah, Chris the, the, worm, the worm teeth knives. Yeah. This is my knife. His name is Chris. Uh, <laughs> 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 I want to talk about some, uh, just a few things about the, the planet of, of Arrakis. That's the name of the Dune planet, mm-hmm. right? Is Arrakis. Yeah. Uh, so the yes. spice I thought was interesting. I did, I know that they explained that the spice has something to do with interstellar travel. I was a little bit, 
unclear about the science of that, but I guess it doesn't really matter so much. Everybody everybody wants the spice, you know, it also makes you trip, yeah. it makes some people see the future. That's that's pretty much it. And, and really with the navigators, it is that the spice gives them a limited precognition mm-hmm. so that they can pick the safe route between stars. Oh, oh, that's really the limit of I it. Did, I, again, they don't, see, I actually they don't didn't pick up on that. So. Okay, so it's not that... I, I, I was picturing them like taking a bunch of spice and like shoveling it to a furnace. It's like, oh, this is our hyperdrive. This is how we power it. Like, <laughs> but no. I like how the advanced tech is all like mechanical. Like yeah. we have a hyperdrive, but in order to know how to get there, we li- we need a guy who can literally see the path before it arrives because we don't have a computer to calculate it. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. That's interesting. So they have to be high to fly. That that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Exactly. All, all I'm saying is that it's a good thing that these pilots don't have drug testing because no one would get anywhere. Yes. No, <laughs> there's drug testing. Is how much drug testing is. You can't be completely yes, sober yes. to fly. Yes. It's like you have to have a certain 60s. level of spice in order to be clear to, to take off. I'm sorry. You're, you're too sober. Come on. Are you okay to fly? The colors. Some of the themes of the book and the movie are a reflection, of course, the time in which it was written. And so there's a a big ecological theme, which was, you know, big in the 60s. But there's also the drug angle, you know, from the 60s as well. And those are both kind of highlighted in in the book and the movie. So just just a a product of its time. So is the spice weed or is it LSD? Because I'm down for weed. That's all I'm it saying. It's much closer to acid, I think. Damn it's more it, like LSD. No, no hemorrhage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was like Coke, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fly. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Get ready to fly. You only think you can see through time at that yeah. point, so. <laughs> I mean, if you're high and you're throwing out a thousand random guesses at a second, you know, one of them is bound to be <laughs> kind of be okay. Wrong. All we know, we don't know if this actually is the way that it works, but we know that we know that this has worked for us so far, so we're just not going to question it. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, turns out it's been blind luck this whole time. We have no idea what we're really doing. But, <laughs> but spice. <laughs> with the Freeman, uh, with the, the things that they had uh, in their their noses is that so that they don't accidentally breathe in the spice or did they explain what 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 those were no it's 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 all about capturing the moisture in your breath and recycling and turning Mm -hmm. it into water and recycling that makes sense okay you know when you breathe out your your yeah your your breath is moist and so this captures that moisture and turns it into water yeah (laughs) yeah you know, they, oh, they point out explicitly that there is like <laughs> little to no water on Dune whatsoever. So that's that's the entire point of the still suits is like you don't lose, you know, as they say, like less than a thimbleful a day if you're wearing one of those suits, um, which you're going to need. But <laughs> I understand that the that the spice is their bread and butter, but there is no way in hell I would live on Arrakis. I'd be like, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. No, I'm good. I'll stay poor over here on my uh, ocean uh, planet. Thanks. Exactly. You thought you all would live on a planet with no water and where the sandworms are going to kill you? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> if I step on the wrong the wrong bit of sand, this giant worm is just going to swallow me whole. Right? 
you know what? Honestly, that seems like better than living on Arrakis. It's just like, ah, fuck, a worm got me. I don't, you know, whatever. <laughs> this is going to happen sooner than later. I thought the sandworms were really cool the way they did those visually with with the CG mm-hmm. and just just the the scale of them. You know, seeing the movie in, on the big screen, like it yeah. was just it was mm-hmm. incredible. The sandworms was something. It was one of the few things that I was kind of aware of from Dune. You know, just through yeah. kind of pop culture osmosis. But it was it was really oh, yeah. cool the way they they did the sandworms i thought the essence of them i think was exactly perfect because in, in the book that's kind of the thing is like they're kind of these god monsters you know on the one hand they're these you know horrific beings that have kind of predictable patterns predictable ideas but they are also much much larger than life almost larger than belief and did the movie i keep forgetting did the movie get into their relation to spice if not then it, did, no, it they does didn't. not okay i'll say that for the second part i've seen tremors though and i enjoyed the sub franchise based <laughs> on the sandworms <laughs> They were awesome. Uh, Troy, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't help but think oh, of Trevor's. Oh, so that's, I mean, I, we should have thought of that. All we had to do is get Reba McIntyre with an elephant gun. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, what you guys have to do is get take these take these long poles and pole vault from, like, platform to platform <laughs> to avoid the... <laughs> yeah! But I thought both the, uh, the music score and the sound design in this film was really well done because in a lot of ways there, mm-hmm. was, there was an interesting blend of the music and the, yeah. the ambient sounds. It made uh, it. Of course, mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer, of course, does the score for this movie. And I, I didn't know that oh, going yeah. in, but during the movie, I was like, Hans Zimmer? And then the credits rolled like Hans Zimmer. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah. I kind of I had a feeling while I was watching it. Hans. And I, one thing about the sound design I really love, too, was how they, how they portrayed the voice because um, yes. watching it in the, the Dolby Theater, what Zach and I watched it in the Dolby Theater, and whenever somebody talks using the voice, like it almost feels like the whole theater shakes uh, when somebody mm. speaks using the voice. And it was really cool, just the bassiness of it, the rumble behind it. Uh, and that, that in addition to like all the sound design, all the music, I just think that this was, yeah. was brilliantly done from, from that perspective. Bring me chocolate mm. donuts. <laughs> I've tried it all week and it hasn't worked. <laughs> I'm like, damn it! You just you're, you're not the right tempo. You're- <laughs> you know, Troy, I I I think it might have worked, but you've been throwing your voice to the East Coast because somebody. I, this is a true thing. Somebody unexpectedly gave me a donut today. I think you must have thrown your voice to the East well, Coast, and it welcome. worked for me somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just it's, gave me a donut. Too I'm like, hard. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Dang it! I just felt compelled to give you a donut, Sam. It's like I felt a felt a rumbling from the west. <laughs> uh, I, heard, I heard something. Felt it more than I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll, you know, I'll just uh, echo what you said about the soundtrack. So even if if you if you can't watch this in the theater when you watch it at home make sure you've got a decent home theater setup because yes. the, the music is in my opinion is just it's, it's just amazing, amazing. It there's is. a lot of weird sounds there's a lot of human voices being used as instruments it's just really cool the whole soundtrack mm-hmm. 
it is otherworldly. It takes you on a trip. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, we, we didn't really talk much about, you know, Baron Harkonnen and uh, Stellan Skarsgård mm-hmm. that much. One of, the, one of the things that I thought was really cool was mm-hmm. the design of that character. Yeah. I mm-hmm. thought it was just really, really cool. He, you know, you see him as like this big, fat, mm-hmm. slovenly man, but then you see like the muscles in his neck and his back. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. then because uh, he looks, he, so he looks super powerful. And then when he wears the super long robes, so that when he rises up, it's. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just, it, the, the visual was just so incredibly cool. I thought that was one of the highlights of, of the visual design of the movie for me was, was his character. Because in the book and the original movie kind of had this weird, he was kind of like this extremely grotesquely overweight clown. Yeah. Um, in a way. Um, yeah. A very, a very dangerous and horrifying clown. Not a funny one in any way. Um, but that was kind of the image that you got. Whereas here... Like, between the costuming and, like, the musculature in his neck, it's like, yes, this is a man who has grown so fat that he needs these anti-grav devices to move, but he was, and in a lot of ways, still is powerful. It Like, that that scene where he's rising up in, in the long robe is like, you know, almost feels like a snake rearing, yeah. um, rearing and rising. It's like, yeah, he, he has this gluttonous spirit. Um, he is very much a slave to his desires, but there is a sharp and very dangerous mind there. Um, and I think that that was portrayed excellently. I completely agree. He he was the exemplar of, of fear itself. There was this slow... The snake is, is very right because of the way he would move and the way he spoke and the way he would invade people's personal spaces as he would talk to them, like he did with Oscar Isaac in the middle, in the end. But which is almost a downfall for him. But the way that the bodysuit moves with him, it's just, it gives me an uneasy feeling when you're experiencing that. I gotta say, I am really sad that it's anti-gravity technology that makes him move that way. I'm sad that it's not some type of power. But the way he played this character was just powerful. Selen Skarsgård is just one of those phenomenal actors, and I think he played the hell out of this role. You yeah. know, it, it's mm-hmm. one of those things, because I, I recognize him from from his his voice is unmistakable, but, like, he's almost unrecognizable underneath all, all the makeup and everything, and the makeup job is also yeah. just phenomenal, the way, yeah, the way they, they kind of did it. Again, it, it did... He, this character was also one of the reasons why I was a little bit confused about whether the Harkonnens were humans or not. I honestly thought, I was like, there's no <laughs> way this guy's a human you know when i was watching well, it but that, that's one of the points with like that's kind of always been the case with him is like he is human but he's riding the line and he got there himself yeah he, he made himself that way yeah for sure i would like to point out that he is the job of the hut just a scary. I'm glad you said that. I, I actually was <laughs> yeah. going to make that yeah. comment, Troy, and I almost forgot. So I'm glad yeah. you said that. That I, he 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 very much reminded me of Jabba. But he's, yeah. he, he's, mm-hmm. he's he's actually a little more mobile and a little more nimble than Jabba, but yeah. he is very much Jabba yeah. for sure. Yeah, he really did remind oh, yeah. me of Jabba the Hutt. Uh, and uh, Dave Batista, I thought was interesting, but I, I could tell that he was also being set up to be a bigger uh, part of the, the second one. I felt yeah. like that he's yeah. he's more the, the kind of warrior uh, type. I, I felt he. 
he's the most different, I think, from the book, from the original version, because Faderutha was kind of portrayed as this... Um, there is actually a good reason Sting was cast as him in the original, is that he is kind of the on-the-surface prettier member of the Harkonnen house. Uh. You know, more classically handsome, but just as monstrous inside. I'm going to have to call you out on this one, Zach. Um, that's not the same character. Uh. It's not? That's not Fade? I thought it was. No. Dave Patisa is playing Raban the Beast. He is oh, he was right, the original right, right. governor of yeah, of Arrakis, you know, when they were kicked out, he was he ah. was running the place. Fade does not appear in this movie. So uh you know, okay. we haven't seen Fade at all, the Sting character from the eighty four version. Well, that's interesting, Dad, that you're saying that he was the, the original governor. That makes sense, because I know mm-hmm. that in the prologue, there's a it shot does. of him where mm-hmm. he's kind of looking down on, on the breadth of his domain, you know? So you, you kind of – again, I, this is definitely a movie that, that, that I'm going to have to watch again, because I definitely think I'll pick up more from it. And I'll, I'll kind of go ahead and go into my overall thoughts, which is – that's kind of what I have to say about this movie overall, which is – I actually did enjoy this movie from a filmmaking perspective, and I I I enjoy it more even as I kind of reflect on it and as I talk to you guys about it. I wanted to avoid seeing it a second time before doing this review because I wanted to come at it from the the perspective of someone who was uninitiated and kind of to, uh, represent the, the the perspective of somebody just seeing the movie for the first time who doesn't really know anything about Dune. And my overall thoughts was that I was very confused by this movie. I really was, and I think that it's, it's just a consequence of it being really 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 dense material but I do think this is a movie that I'm going to go back to and rewatch and I I have a feeling that I'm gonna end up really liking this movie but as it as it is I just it's hard to really wrap my head like I, I under I have, I'm coming out of this nerd shit with a better understanding of it from talking to you guys but I just feel like a movie shouldn't require homework to to go into and I, I think that that's really the ultimate problem with it but I I also just feel like this is probably the best you know from everything I've heard about the novel this is probably the best adaptation they really could have made from it I think that it's just really difficult material and really complex and, and, and you know kind of problematic material in terms of being able to translate it to screen and I understand why it has been called unfilmable in a lot of ways like in some ways i think you know there's 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 some truth to that but i do think this is a good movie i actually i did enjoy it and i enjoy it more as i kind of reflect on it the score i'm gonna give it for now is a 7 out of 10 and that's just from having seen the movie once i think that my confusion with the plot was somewhat stood in the way of me getting really emotionally invested in what was going on. I got more invested as it went on, you know, like once uh, Paul and Jessica kind of broke away and, and went off on their own, that was when the movie started to really pick up for me. But I do want to go back and watch this movie again because I, I think that I'm probably going to get a lot more out of it. It's very possible that my score, if I were to ever revisit this, would go up. But for now, I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10. So, Dad, I'm interested to hear what, what your overall thoughts on the movie are, are, are as someone who is is familiar with the, the source material. So what did you think of it overall? Sure. And, and knowing the source material, you know, will certainly influence my score of this movie. And I can't really decide if it's going to be better or worse because I know the source material. I think it's the, perhaps it's the most faithful, it, it is absolutely the most faithful, you know, uh, uh, visual media, you know, TV series and movie uh, of this book that's ever been done. In order 
to do this book justice, you know, maybe it's not possible to, to, to do it justice. There's so much in it. Uh, Brian Herbert, uh, Frank Herbert, you know, the author, uh, Frank Herbert's son, Brian, has said that you could read this book and pick one of three or four different points of view about what the book is about, and it stands up against all of those. He talks about the politics. He talks about the ecology. He talks about free will. It's really a masterpiece, the book, and this is about as close as I can imagine, you know, a two-hour movie covering the first half of that book. There's there's some flaws in it. I think the first act, there's parts that are a little bit slow. I think it is confusing, even knowing... The source material, you know, I recognized that they never really say Raban's name and let you know that he's the governor. They never really say that Jessica is the concubine of Leto. There's a lot of stuff they just basically had to leave out because of how dense this work is. All that said, the acting and the casting I thought were great. Uh, soundtrack is amazing. The uh, visuals are fantastic, and it did a good job of telling that story. With all of those things, I give it an 8 out of 10. I suspect when I see part 2, my score for this movie will go up. But right now, it's definitely a movie I'm going to watch again, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, And I think it's just opening up the potential for the entire saga to be one of my favorites. But we got to wait for that second part before I can make that judgment. It was beautiful. Like I said, I went back and I watched the 1984 uh, version of it. And it was hard to make it through it. Uh, The mistake that they made in the 1984 is they kept giving exposition, 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 exposition. And it's because this would be so hard to do because you have all of, I guess, because in the novel, as they explained, you have all of these inner thoughts that aren't really, um, dialogue. So you have to figure out how to make dialogue part of the story and give that exposition. And I think the 1984 horribly did that. One of my pet peeves is for you me to go in and sit down and watch a sci-fi movie and they explain every goddamn thing to me. Let me have my imagination. Let me enjoy it and give me the story. And that's what they did in this movie. That's the biggest thing that that impressed me. I can watch a movie two or three times. I consume movies. I consume books, too. Don't get me wrong. But a movie, I will consume it. And I will study it, every little thing, because I learn from watching movies. That's part of that's part of my job. And the way that they did this is there's a lot of imagery. There is a lot of movement. There is a lot of things in this movie that's packed in to give me this experience and enough that has foreshadowed. I'm glad they have a second one because there is a lot of foreshadowing in this one. And that's the way that they gave us that exposition. And I love that. So the writing was fucking genius. The cast was amazing. And the cast was diverse. That's the one thing that the that the old one failed on. They had a lot of white males playing all of these characters. And it was boring. It was just boring. If you're not going to have aliens, have race diversity in a thing. Are you telling me that this universe, this known universe, only has white people in it? But this one has that diversity in it. We are given more of this archetype in this movie as well. We are given that 
old Greek story archetypes that make for a really good epic. And that's what they're building at. I'm hoping that they do it in three movies instead of two, but we'll see. But that's what it seems like it's building up to. But they foreshadowed a lot in this movie. So I'm thinking it's probably going to be two. I only watch this once. Usually when we're doing something new and it's on HBO Max, I play it over and over and over and over and over again. But it was so well done. It's still fresh in my mind. So I think the movie was beautifully done, geniusly written, and expertly executed. And it came together and it was beautiful. Just simply gorgeous. But I have one complaint. Only one complaint. And it's a stupid complaint. I know it's a stupid complaint before I throw it out there. There were no fucking aliens in space! There were sandworms! <laughs> there were sandworms, that's There was true. a little mouse thing! The sandworms, are, the sandworms is, is, a, is a biological organism set to this one planet. There were no sentient beings. Yeah, I, I heard you saying the sandworms are they're animals. Yeah, they're not, yeah. Yes. I guess. So I that's guess. the only tick, that's the only critique I have for this. So I'm going to give it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna break my rules about holes. I'm going to give it an eight and a half because it was really good, but there were no aliens. Yeah, this is a really gorgeous movie. Every single person involved, the writing, the sound design, um, the cinematography, the acting, it's as good as you can ever want in any film. And it is really faithful to the book. That's pretty much every problem I have with it is just that this is a really, really, really goddamn dense story. I know they're planning on two movies for, you know, the story of the first book. I think it probably should have been three. Um, I actually think that there was actually a natural point in the movie. I thought that the scene with Jessica and Paul in the tent would have been a natural end to a part one. And then you continue and you pick up a part two from there. And then you finish out the trilogy. And that was one of the problems I had with it was that it felt very difficult to know when we were nearing the end of the movie. Um, I had a very hard time sensing where we were in the course of the overall film. But that's because this is um, only half the story, which, you know, that's, that's a lot of cases. But because this is so dense, because there's so much they have to get through, um, it does mean that, you know, it was difficult finding a point for them to stop and, you know, pick it up later. And that's also the thing with the pacing is that, I, you know, I was mentioning as we got out of the theater, I think the pacing is as good as they possibly could have made it, but it still had problems just because of how much they were trying to get through. They couldn't have gone any slower or would have been plotting. Um, they also couldn't go any faster because people were getting lost as is. They went exactly as fast as they could. Pacing is still off, not because of any mistakes, but just because that's how, that's the speed they have to go to get through this. And there is a lot. And I do think that cutting this into three movies would probably have helped that a little bit. But the actual filmmaking at work is masterful. This is a gorgeous movie. This is fantastic, and it does translate the story very well, in my opinion. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. There's not a lot they could have done to make it better. Um, this is as good as, I think, an adaptation as you could possibly want. But, you know, as, you, as you've mentioned, it is... It is entirely possible this story might not be, it might not be possible to fully adapt this to a visual medium, but they did as much as they could. 
So the only the only thing I'm gonna like quickly sort of rebut, although I, I definitely see where you're coming from, Zach. I'm glad that it's two movies because I think while a slower pace might have helped me to follow it a little bit better, I also think that it would have made the movie boring. I'm I'm gonna be honest. I think mm-hmm. that to a certain degree, you have to have plot points happen at a certain pace in order to just keep the audience engaged and not have it just be so bogged down by exposition. Because you're right, Dad. Like it w- it already was kind of slow in the beginning as it was, and yet there was still a lot to keep up with. Like it sh- there's just there's just a lot to really get through, and I think that that's kind of unavoidable. Um, I preferred where they ended the movie. I think that for me and maybe this is you know just from me Mm. seeing it as the film that like I never really got the sense that the scene in the tent was anywhere close to the end of the movie. I think I would have been a little thrown off by it had the movie ended there. It's like, what? That's the end of the movie type thing? You know, it's like, that doesn't feel very climactic as opposed to ending it with, we've met up with the Freeman and we're going forward towards, you know, this uncertain future. Felt like, that to me felt like a more compelling place to end the movie for me personally. Um, But again, I I, I haven't read the book, so but like just where where they ended it felt like a natural point to end and I love that line that Zendaya's character has at the end of this is only the beginning, you know, a line to Paul and definitely a line to the audience of there is there is more to come. Uh, and now that the sequel is greenlit, this actually is only the beginning. So, Dad, it was great having you on the podcast finally. And I, I'm glad that yes. you were on this episode, especially with you being a uh, yes. being a fan of the, <laughs> uh, the the book series. I think that you. You, you, you brought in a, a, a very much a, a, a good perspective for this review is there anything that you would personally like to plug as far as anything you're working on or anything uh social media wise you want to plug on the podcast yeah well um you can catch me on twitter at uh m jeff w that's mostly used you know for uh family and and other sort of notifications but i also occasionally post uh, professionally there i occasionally talk at uh, tech conferences and consult with uh with teams about uh it it stuff right agile process and test automation and that kind of thing. So, you know, if in, in the weird uh, coincidence that somebody listening to this podcast needs an agile coach, you know, you can send me a, a tweet at, at, at M Jeff W. Uh, the folks can find me on Facebook as Zachariah Schneider. They can find me on Twitter as uh, Zachariah Schneider 4, Zachariah S-C-H-N-E-4. You might be able to find me on Instagram as the Zaman, although I think someone hacked the account. So oh I'm yeah, you were either, super hacked. You know. I got some weird DMs from. <laughs> oh <you>. yeah. <laughs> so that I might I might need to delete that and restart start anew with that. But uh, you can find me under Troy Hensley or the Troy Hensley uh, on all of the on all of the social medias out there. I uh, twatter on the Twitter. And, um, I Insta on the gram. I am on Facebook. You can find me on the TikTok doing and saying stupid stuff. Uh, you will probably be offended by the things I say on TikTok eventually. You may not be offended at first. I'm sure you will be, but you will eventually be offended by things I say. That's a, that's a promise. Awesome. I'm Sam Wilson. You can find me on Instagram at scwilson underscore actor. That's S-C-W-I-L-S-O-N underscore A-C-T-O-R. 
You can follow my band Running Riot at Running Riot Band. You can follow Nerd Shit at the Nerd Shit Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at the Nerd Shit on Twitter. We release episodes weekly. Make sure you're subscribed to us anywhere you get your podcasts. Leave us a star rating. Leave us a review. Send us a DM. Up next, we've got Ghostbusters 2 continuing our countdown to Ghostbusters Afterlife. We're going to review Ghostbusters 2. Command me, Lord! Command me! So, very much looking forward to getting into that one. For Zach Schneider, Troy Hensley, Jeff Wilson, I'm Sam Wilson. Thank you for joining us for Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. shit. Say shitty, nerds. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. So strap on in because we're talking about the Nerd Shit.